So this is week three of our series looking at Noah. And today's topic is something that everybody goes through often. I'll have to wait a few minutes to find out what it is. God saw the wickedness of man, and God announced judgment on mankind. Now, God is just, is just, was deserved, but God is also merciful. Okay, so, go with the podium mic. Sorry, we have technical difficulties quite often. Still trying to get it sorted out. God chose Noah to build an ark to save people and to save two of each kind of animal. Now, in this, we see that God provides rescue, and God still rescues today. Now, as a reminder, and this is something that was mentioned last week and the week before, Noah was not any better than anybody else. God chose him because God chose to choose Noah. We also see that Noah preached... We see that from the New Testament, and that people could not have missed Noah building the ark. Sometimes we read the Bible and just kind of let it slide past us. We don't think, what would it be like if I was there? You can't miss the ark. It was huge, over 400 feet long and 75 feet wide. Nobody had ever built anything like that before. And it took Noah about 100 years to build the ark. Now, there's a parallel between Jesus' second coming which is still future for us, and when the flood started. So for the flood, a warning was given, not just to Noah, but again, Noah preached. Time was allowed for people to see and to hear and to turn to God, in this case, at least 100 years. Then there was judgment, but no one knew exactly when the judgment would come. The same is true for Jesus' second coming, which is part of God's final judgment. Jesus has given a warning, and we have it in the Bible. He is giving time for people to turn to God. So far, he's given 2,000 years. And no one knows when Jesus will come again. Now, God's judgment is not a popular topic, but it is an essential one since, first, we all rebel against God, and second, because God offers rescue. Now, we also saw last week that the ark was built with three levels, with rooms for people and animals and food. God brought the animals to Noah. God told Noah and his family to get into the ark, and God sealed the ark. And then it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's usually what we focus on, that it rained. But it has these words, too, and we're told that the deeps opened up. Now, I believe that means that the earth's crust split open. Now, the Bible does not conflict at all with science. And if you look at this idea of the deeps opening up, the earth splitting open, you have a worldwide cataclysmic event. If the deeps opened up, now I'm going to talk from a scientific point of view. I was trained as, a, as an engineer. Tectonic plates, which I'll explain in a second, could have shifted and there would have been multiple earthquakes, tsunamis, and volcanoes. A tectonic plate is a piece of the Earth's crust. To get a sense of the size of these plates, the entire United States sits on one plate. If these plates are shifting and moving 
imagine continents shifting. You know, an earthquake happens when a little piece of the Earth's crust rubs against another piece. And you get an earthquake and it sends out these vibrations. If that earthquake happens under the ocean, it creates a tsunami, a tidal wave that can go miles inland and destroy everything on the coast. So imagine not just one little bitty whoop, but imagine entire continents shifting. You're now moving oceans. And so you get all this water moving, you get the death and destruction. So here's one related modern day example of this kind of destructive activity. Mount St. Helens volcano in the 1980s. It's a relatively small event, but there was steam and lava and mud. It was also a great opportunity for scientists to study what can happen because they had warning that it was going to blow and it did over a period of time have different events. And if I remember correctly, one event from the volcano created layers of rock, dozens of feet thick, little tiny layers. And scientists had previously thought that these layers took hundreds of years to form, like one layer per year kind of a thing. And here in just one event, all of a sudden here's all this rock. Another event created a canyon one-fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon. Now you might think, oh, one-fortieth, that's pretty small scale. Just remember the Grand Canyon is a, wide, a mile wide in one part and at least a mile deep. So one-fortieth of a mile is still pretty big. This was a little bitty volcano, and it made that, that canyon in one day. Okay? Imagine, as I said, entire continents shifting, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, all of that. You've got a worldwide cataclysmic event with wide-scale death and destruction. And while the waters rose, Noah and his family and the animals were safe in the ark. Well, this takes us to today's verses. You go ahead and put those up. Let's read, remain seated. Let's read from the screen, Genesis 8, verses 1 to 19. Let's read. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were rest- was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of a hundred and fifty days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, The tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days 
And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the grace of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So we see in verse 1 that God remembered. Have you ever wondered why it says that? It isn't because God forgot. The idea of remember here is faithful love and timely intervention. Again, not that God had forgotten and then later recalled. So think of it this way. God saw, and at just the right time, God acted. God saw Noah, at just the right time, he acted. And we see in verse 1 and 2 some of what God is doing. First, he made a wind to blow, and he also closed the fountains of the deep. And the result is the water which had covered the mountains began to recede. Now there's a parallel here between the wind blowing and in Genesis 1 where we see that the Spirit hovered over the waters. Same Hebrew word is used for wind and for spirit. What we see is God acting. Now again, the flood was a worldwide flood and there's evidence all over the world that it was a worldwide flood. For example, there are fossils of sea creatures on the tops of mountains. How could they get to the tops of mountains unless they were covered? There's fossils of sea creatures across continents, like the middle of the United States. How could that happen unless it had been covered? Because again, think science for a second, a little science lesson for free, not going to get tested on it. Where do fossils come from? What happens to your plants in your yard, for example, when you cut them down and just leave them to die? They end up just kind of falling apart and they go back into the earth. There's nothing left. The same kind of thing happens with animals. Roadkill, stuff like that. Scavengers eat it. The bones finally fall apart. But what happens when you have plants or animals that are very quickly covered by mud and dirt and rock? Some of them turn into fossils. And so we've got fossil rec- you know, of sea creatures all across the United States in, in other continents and on mountaintops. And then we see 
in verse 4, that in the seventh month, the ark settled in the region of Ararat. Now, even though lots of people have looked, we don't know exactly where that is, where the ark is. Ararat is probably somewhere in or near southwest Turkey. But notice this too. Noah's name, the word Noah, means rest. And we're told that the ark rested in Ararat. So here you have God doing a little play on words. Then in the 10th month, we're told the tops of the mountains were seen. So the water is still receding. And then in verse 6, Noah opened the window of the ark. We don't know how big it is. I'm pretty sure it wasn't double-pane glass. Okay, but he opened the window. And in verses 7 to 12, Noah sent out a raven and some doves. Now we're told, too, that after the mountains are seen, Noah waited 40 days, and then he sent out the raven. As Bob said, a raven is a scavenger. The Hebrew word, wording of what happened here suggests that the raven left the, you know, was, flew out of the ark, later returned to the ark, but didn't go back inside. It flew to and fro. Then, we're told, Noah sends a dove, and it comes back. Noah waited seven days. He sends a dove again. This time it comes back with an olive leaf. Olive leaf was a sign that plants were growing. He waits seven more days, and he sends a dove again, and this time the dove does not return. So if you think about it, Noah is using the birds to get a sense of what's happening outside the ark. He only has this one window, and it's at the top. He can't see, probably can't see very much. So then we read in verse 13 that Noah removes the covering of the ark. Now he can see. But then we're told he waits two more months, almost two full months. And then finally, after a year, after the rains began, the earth had dried out, and we see God had preserved Noah and the animals just as he said he would. And then starting in verse 16, God gives the command to leave the ark and to multiply on the earth. And that command parallels the command that we see in Genesis 1 to fill the earth. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, the theme of today's sermon is waiting. In particular, waiting on God. And the Bible is full of waiting. I'm just going to give you one example besides Noah. In the book of Luke, we read that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel when he met Mary and Joseph and he held baby Jesus. People had been waiting hundreds of years for this to happen. And again, at just the right time, God acted. Well, it's not just in the Bible. There is a lot of waiting involved in being human. Okay, for those of you that are in school, you're thinking, when am I going to finish? You're waiting to finish school. For those people in the military, you're waiting, or maybe not waiting anymore, for your next transfer. For teenagers, there's waiting to get your driver's license or to get your first real paying job. We wait for movies to come out. During the week, we wait for the weekend. People that are working are also waiting to get to retirement. So this is a lot of waiting, and this is not all of the waiting that we do. And, and if you notice, in all of these things that I just mentioned in the list, we're busy while we're waiting. We're not sitting around. But there's more still. As Christians, we are waiting for full redemption and complete restoration. I've used 
that four-word summary of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Redemption and restoration began with Jesus, and God gives us new life starting now, but redemption and restoration won't be complete until Jesus comes a second time. Another thing that we can and should be doing often is praying. We pray and then we wait for God to answer. By the way, let me just put a little plug in here for the prayer chain. We have an email prayer chain that we use to put out prayer requests for people to pray for. And as you, if, you, if you're a part of that, you can look back and think, there's a few times where God has said no to the prayer request, but so often, so many, many times God has said yes. But even in that praying, almost all the time it's praying and waiting. Now, you and I do not naturally like waiting. Okay, we just don't. But let me give you one example from my family. My wife and I gave an allowance to our children when they were younger. And being the engineer type that I am, I actually had a spreadsheet laid out from age 5 to 15, and each year how much they would get. And so they looked forward to birthdays because they knew they were going to get an increase in the allowance. Now, parents do this in different ways. We chose to give an allowance to our children as, to, as a way to share God's blessing to our family. And so we split the allowance into three parts. We said there's spending and saving and tithe. Now, when the children got their allowance, they immediately wanted to use their spending money. They wanted to buy something. And so we took them to the dollar store because that's about the only place they could use what little they had to buy something. Well, they quickly found out that dollar store toys don't last very long. And we wanted our children to learn something. One, to begin to learn a little bit about money, but also to learn about delayed gratification. That is, if you wait and save your money, you can get a better toy. So we were actually, and I didn't really think about it in that way that much, we we're trying to train them to wait. Now, there's a movie called Fireproof that has a great song about waiting. And in the movie, a decorated fireman, which means he's a very successful fireman in his career, sees that his marriage is in trouble and that he is the primary cause of the problems. And so he accepts a love dare from a friend of his. And this love dare is a 40-day study of love based on the Bible. And in the process of doing the study, the fireman becomes a Christian. And so he then works to restore his marriage when his wife is understandably skeptical. She's lived with years of his selfishness. And all of a sudden, just like that, he's changed. Is it really going to stick? Well, in the middle of the movie, when he is working to restore his marriage, they play this song in the background. And here are some of the lyrics of the song. It's written by John Waller. And it's called While I'm Waiting. And I want you to notice the words that are underlined. The song goes, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you, Lord, and I am hopeful. I'm waiting on you, Lord, though it is painful. But patiently, I will wait. And I will move ahead bold and confident, taking every step in obedience. While I'm waiting, I will serve you. While I'm waiting, I will worship. While I'm waiting, I will not faint. I'll be running the race even while I wait. 
I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you, Lord, and I am peaceful. I'm waiting on you, Lord, though it's not easy. No, but faithfully, I will wait. Yes, I will wait. Now, we'll talk about those words more in just a minute. Related to waiting is endurance. Because sometimes God has us in challenging situations while we wait. Now, let me just say here, our culture and advancements in technology make it easier, or not, no, I'm sorry, turn it around, make it harder for us to wait patiently. Our culture presses for immediate gratification. And technology makes many things faster, but you know what? We're never going to eliminate waiting while we're here on this earth. We can't avoid it. And this is a very important point that I want you to get. Our hearts are not neutral while we wait. We have desires and hopes and fears. And those things move us while we're waiting. So, what should we do while we're waiting? Let me recommend these things. First one, pray and talk to God. Talk to God about your situation, about your desires, about your hopes, and about your fears. And this is not where you just talk to God once about it and say, I'm done. No, this is every day we're talking to God. Second, remember God's promises that he gives us in his word. Get God's perspective. And if you've been wanting a good Bible study, let me recommend this one. Start in the New Testament, read through the New Testament, and look for where you find God's promises. It's a great way to see what God has said he is doing and will do. Thirdly, choose to trust God. Notice I put it as a choice, not a feeling. Choose to trust God in his grace, his goodness, his kindness. Now, let me tell you this. You may very well have to make this particular choice to trust God multiple times a day. Why? Because our hearts aren't silent. We want what we want. We have these desires and these fears and all these other things. And there are times where we want to kind of take it back into our own hands and go after what we want rather than trust God. So you may have to make that choice multiple times. This leads to the next one. I I call it, hold your circumstances in an open hand. If you've grabbed a hold of something, I used to have, if you can see this battery, as an example, I usually used to use a pencil. If I have a death grip on the battery, okay, you're not going to get it. Okay, I have to open my hand first. This is my desire. If I hold it with an open hand, God might take it away. He might give it and grant it. And so part of trusting God is to open our hands with our desires on the things that we're wanting and waiting for and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. If I close my fist, I've just said, God, there's only one good outcome. This is it. Okay, this or nothing. Open our hands. Then choose to love God. Choose to worship God. There's every day, even when things are so, so hard, there's always something that we can thank God for and praise him for. Then choose to obey God. Again, it's a choice. Look at where God has called you, your family, your school, your work, other circumstances. He's put you there. What does he have for you to do? 
How does God call you to live with others all the time, not just when you're waiting? He wants us to be loving and patient and kind and forgiving. And related to choosing to obey, choose to endure. Choose to endure the challenges, to endure the painful experiences, which is a way of saying don't give up. God's working. And then choose to love others and to serve others. Because again, it's so easy if we're not to be focused just on ourselves. And when we love God, when we love others, serve others, we take the focus off of ourselves. And we, again, are not just stuck looking at ourselves. So let me go through it again. We pray and we talk to God every day, all through the day. We remember God's promises and get God's perspective. We choose to trust God. And again, we may have to make that choice multiple times a day. There was a time in, in my life where I did not like what I had done, when there were the consequences. And, I, and so every day when I got home from work, I would take a walk and I'd pray and I'd say, God, I do not like my life right now. But then I also said, was God brought me to the point of being honest and said, well, I got here because I tried to run my life the way I wanted to. And I made a mess. So now I'm dealing with the consequences of the mess, and I don't like it. If I'd stopped right there, I would just be complaining with a little bit of honesty. But somebody, because I was attending Harvester, has challenged me to do this next part, choose to trust God. And so at the end of the prayer, I always added, God, I choose to trust you. And that was my prayer for months. And I didn't think about it then, but I was waiting. And I did not know what the outcome was going to be. I did not know what the next step was going to be, which fits with the hold your circumstances with an open hand. And then choose to love God and worship him. Choose to obey him. Choose to love and serve others. If you do that, then we're in a place to receive what it is that God gives us. But there's a related thought. Well, and by the way, this applies to all different kinds of situations. A couple that I thought of. You might be wanting to go to college. You might be wanting some particular job training. You might want to be getting married. There's a number of things that you might be waiting on that this applies to. But here's a related thought. What attitude should we have while we're waiting? Now, this is, there's some overlap between this question and the last one. But here's the first part. First, my life is not my own. All of us are created by God. We're created by God to be in relationship with him. Christians are all saved by God, which means we're not in charge of our lives. That was part of what God brought me to in the middle of that praying. I tried to be in charge, made a mess, and it was that in part that prompted God, where God prompted me to say, okay, God, I'm letting go of the reins of this. I want you to direct things. Then to choose to trust God, and out of that trust comes contentment and peace. Choose to be diligent, to, to persevere, have an attitude of I'm going I'm to go as I'm trusting God. I'm going to keep doing what he calls me to do. But in the middle of that, seek God's direction, which means I'm not going to trust my own wisdom. In, in what I should be doing. And the result of those is that I can be hopeful and I can be patient as I'm waiting. 
Now, as we look at those two questions and, and the answers that I proposed, realize that you and I cannot do the things that we should be doing while we're waiting. You and I can't have the attitude that we, God calls us to have while we're waiting. We cannot have, do that on our own. We need God to work in our lives, and so we ask God to work in our lives. Here's some closing thoughts that I wanted to share on waiting, and there's more that could be said. First, God's provision is not always quick, but it's never late. God's provision is not always quick, but it's never late. Now, sometimes God answers before we finish asking. I've heard multiple people tell a story something like this. In their family, there was a situation, maybe there was a hospital bill, or all of a sudden they had the car had to get worked on, they had a, a repair bill, they didn't have the money, and they go to the mailbox, and that day they open the mailbox, and then there is a letter, and in the letter is a check. And sometimes it was for exactly the amount that was needed. But again, think about it. This was back before instant bank transfer and Venmo and all those other doodads that we can do now to move fast. Somebody had to write the check, put it in the mail. It got mailed sometimes across the country. It arrives that day. That means that everything started before the auto repair was needed, maybe even before the hospital event had happened. Sometimes God answers before we ask, or before we finish asking. But more often, we do have to wait. Now, while we're waiting, we must, and notice that I put that word must, still seek God. And I say that because our hearts are not neutral. We actually have to fight our own selfishness and to fight to trust God if we're going to trust him. Now, when God does provide, it may not be what we expect, but it is the best thing for us. And this is so important, and it's why I talked about having the open hand. To be willing to receive whatever it is that God chooses to provide. And again, I've heard people talk about their own lives and their stories, maybe about their career. I know I've heard that about a about careers, I've heard about people buying homes, major life decisions. And what they originally wanted didn't happen, but they've been able to look back and say, but I see God's hand because what he did give is better than what I would have chosen. And then finally, God never forgets us. Always, at just the right time, God acts. He never says, oops. Oh, man, I, I meant to do that. You'll never hear those words come out of heaven. Always at just the right time, God acts. Well, essential to waiting well, and I think that's grammatically correct. You can wait poorly, badly. I'm, I'm not quite sharp on all my grammatical things. But essential to waiting well is loving God and loving others. Well, you and I, can only love God and love others because God first loved us. And we're reminded of his love in this meal that we have before us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. 
We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Noah. But you don't just hold him up and say, start working, people, so that you can copy him. He's an evidence of your grace. You give us grace. You teach us. You direct us. We pray that you would help us because we all experience waiting. Bring these things to, to our minds to remember, to pray, to trust, all of these other things that we've looked at. And we thank you that we can rest and be hopeful and be content because you are good and you've chosen to love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this meal, communion,